Assalamu alaikum. I'm Khalil Alika. And I'm Zahir Parker. And welcome to AccidentalMuslims.com. So AccidentalMuslims.com is a, a movement, a platform where we showcase present and future leaders to help us live with purpose. And we believe that everybody has a story to tell. This podcast hopes to add value. So welcome and enjoy. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A very good day. Welcome. I'm Hawa Solomon, expert head that has visited our shores. Alhamdulillah, mashallah. We have to welcome our esteemed guest uh, who's just literally ran through the shores of South Africa in one week. And we are very happy. Uh, Dr. Hisham Al Awadi has uh, made some time for us. Inshallah, assalamu alaikum to you, Doctor. How are you doing? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah, sister Hawa. I'm really so, so honored uh, and have the pleasure to be here with you today and your audience. MashaAllah, Doctor, you have presented some beautiful um, uh, seminars and workshops uh, to our uh, Cape Tonians as well as uh, the Joburgers. Um, some parental guidance through the life of the Prophet وسلم, supporting teenagers through their growth, their transitions, um, always showing it through love and respect, um, how our actions as parents impact the innocent, the very innocent young, um, as well as uh, the adolescent children, and of course, setting the right example first. So inshallah, with uh, just an, a brief introduction, um, I would like to know what was your experience like uh, in South Africa thus far? Uh, of course, with uh, interacting with our uh, our Capetonians and people here from Joburg and uh, their parenting comments. Uh, Sister Hawa, my brother is not a broadcaster, neither does he have any uh, background in media, but believe it or not, he asked me just a few moments ago the same question. Mm. Uh, I spoke to him over the phone uh, in Kuwait and he said, when are you coming? What time? I need to pick you up, etc, etc. Um, and then he said, and how is South Africa? I said, South Africa is amazing. And South Africa to me is amazing because of two things. Because of the geography, the terrain, the, the table mountain, uh, the, all the sort of uh, beautiful places. But I think what makes a real country beautiful is not just the terrain, mm. uh, but it's, it's, it's people. And really with no exaggeration, whether in Cape Town or in Johannesburg. And I'm saying this because I tour uh, different countries a lot and I know that, you know, in every country, brothers and sisters receive you and everything, and they do as much as they can to make you feel at home. But really, if there was a competition, I think the brothers and sisters in South Africa will uh, score number one in terms of hospitality. Just today, and uh, some of the brothers were with us, we were invited uh, by uh, an honorable grandmother uh, who did not only cook for us, but cook with an art and design and was so eager to give every bit of food some sort of an experience. Mm. So I said to her at the end, can I have your autograph? Because she was really amazing. Um, my point is that uh, really as far as hospitality was concerned, was another thing that I, I noticed, I don't know, but I don't think this is like uh, acting or faking. But you know, people talk about water scarcity, walk, uh, talk about economic recession. I cannot square this with seeing people that are always smiling, always joking, always laughing. So to me, this is really highly valued because if you come into some countries in the Arab world, they are so depressed. They have a lot of money, they have a lot of wealth, yet they are not happy. They, they need to uh, eat more to become happy. They need to consume more to become happy. 
Here, I think the Muslims in South Africa, no exaggeration, set a role model for the rest of the Muslims. Yes, they might not know Arabic. Yes, their knowledge of Islam is modest. But the little they know, they practice. And this is really for someone who comes from the Arab world is so inspiring. As much as perhaps they have learned from me, I am sure that I have learned a lot from them. Alhamdulillah. Sounds like a doctor will be taking a lot home <laughs> to share, inshallah. So my first question on within these beautiful seminars that I've sort of caught tidbits about, um, and one that stood out for me specifically was something that's quite hidden, and it's emotional intelligence in children. How did the Prophet ﷺ guide the Sahabas to be emotionally intelligent with regards to their children and interaction with children? That's a fascinating question. Um, actually, uh, when we talk about emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence today, and there is a lot of literature. In fact, every time I go to the airport, I have to visit bookstores. And every time I go to the top shelf of business skills or self-development, there has to be a new book on emotional intelligence. They give it a different title, a different cover, different author, but it has to be on emotional intelligence. And uh, of course, uh, Daniel Goldman, the one who actually coined the term, has now written several books, Emotional Intelligence in Families, Emotional Intelligence in Companies. But Emotional Intelligence, in a nutshell, is, is to do with being able to understand one's emotion, your own emotion, not just understand them, but to the extent of actually pinpointing them, labeling them, naming them. So sometimes you see people who feel a little bit unhappy and you say, what's wrong? Um, you know, I don't know, I just feel unhappy. Why? They don't know why, they don't know what label to give. So emotional intelligence is actually nurturing that intelligence in one's own uh, mind and heart to be able to identify when am I upset? Why am I upset? What is it that is making me upset? And of course, ultimately the solution. But that's 50% of emotional intelligence. The other 50%, which makes it 100, is do, being able to do the same with others, being able to identify the emotions of others. You don't have to necessarily wait until they verbally express that I am sad, I am unhappy, I am happy. No, but looking at their faces, looking at their voice, tone of their voices, the way they interact, even the size of their eye pupil, all these are indications. Um, and subhanAllah, when, you know, in, in my talks about the seerah of Rasulullah there are, you know, ample examples of how Rasulullah on many occasions will, will, uh, will really address uh, for example, someone would say, Ya Rasulallah, what is Al-Islam? And then he will tell him Al-Islam from one perspective. And then another person will come, Ya Rasulallah, same question. He can give him the same answer, but that person dictates a different answer because he's a different person. He, they, each one of them don't go and tell them, you know, I'm a different person. Suffice it that he looks at him, shakes hands with him, sits with him, looks into him into the eyes, gives him even the tone. Sometimes he smiles with someone and maybe not as frequently with another. He knows that if he smiled with that person too frequently, that person will be impacted. One, one such companion, he said, since I became a Muslim, not a single time I have met the Prophet without him looking me into the eye 
and smiling. We don't have all the Sahaba reporting that. Mm. But nonetheless, all of the Sahaba felt that the Rasulullah as if it were, was talking to him or her only. So much so that Amr ibn As once thought that he was the most beloved companion to Rasulullah until of course the shock was when he asked him, he learned that no, unfortunately, he was not the number one companion close to a Prophet If we can get people to interact with us, not just feel comfortable interacting with us, but feel that they are valued when they are interacting with us, I think we would have followed the sunnah of Rasulullah Jazakallah, Dr. Isha, mashallah, beautifully said how we can, little things that we do with children, interaction actually changes a lot. We have to take a short break when we get back more on Dr. Isham and the beautiful examples of the Prophet in parenting and interacting with our little young ones. Back in a moment. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Very good day. Welcome back to VOC 91.3 FM. I'm Hawa Salomon and this is Childcare and Development. Shukran so much for joining us. You may also interact with us via our WhatsApp or SMS line. Uh, please do note that we, Dad Peterson, will be in contact with you during office hours if you have any comments, questions and queries within the show and unfortunately we'll, we will not be able to respond right now but we do appreciate all of them so please do then keep them coming and remember um, that we appreciate you make the show you as individuals within the community you make your sh the show and your comments are important so we welcome back dr hisham uh, who has visited uh, our shows mashallah and still making the last few minutes of his time here within south africa available to us with some of the nitty-gritty questions uh, that we have received uh, from some of our listeners as well and put together uh, that he has made some time uh, dr hisham all the way from kuwait and i'm sure he can't wait get, uh, to get back to his family mashallah but dr hisham um if we could quickly touch on a topic that is quite rife in the community here, and I'm not sure if it's relevant throughout, it is bullying. Bullying has started from as, as young as two, three years old, and we know that the terrific two stages and how we as parents are meant to handle it. But were there any incidents at the time of the Sahabas where the Prophet ﷺ had related some stories that individuals had overpowered him in, in a very similar manner and, and how he dealt with it? You know, these, these terms sometimes baffle me, bullying, cyberbullying, and um, sometimes really when you want to give a talk and make a seerah relevant, these are some of the challenges that one encounters. It, what, what, what is it that, uh, that he can create by way of relevance and commonality? And sometimes the approach, my approach, is to actually um, take the term itself, bullying, break it into pieces and see the essential core motivation behind it and the behavior the behavior that is driving either the bullier or the one who's being bullied and then superimpose this on a broader level on a general level to some sort of even if close behaviors at the time of Rasulullah and seeing how Rasulullah uh, responded to that 
And one of the things, you know, one of the things that really come to mind when I think about bullying, uh, you know, we hate bullying, obviously and understandably, because what it does is that it hurts one's emotion and it impacts particularly children who are very raw in terms of emotion and very sensitive. And it really has this kind of a mental impact, social impact, but also physical impact. A lot of self-injury by children is done uh, because of, of bullying. So at the end of the day, and this goes back to your earlier question about emotional intelligence and seeing that Rasulullah did take care extremely uh, regarding the emotions of children. So, for example, one incident, and I know that it might not, might not directly re relate to bullying, but again, it is to do with caring for the emotions of the child. He saw once a mother saying to her child, little little boy, come and I'll give you so and so, and she promised him to give him uh, a, a date if he does come. And he interjected very politely and very softly and said, were you intending actually to give him the date if he came? She said, yes, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah. He said, that's good, because if you didn't, you would be counted as a liar. So from an early stage, he's actually inculcating into parents, let alone peer, peer groups, schoolmates, etc., that the child, it's the child's right to be living in a transparent environment, in an honest and genuine envi environment, where his emotions are not being manipulated, even if for a good cause. Then you have another incident whereby Rasulullah says in a famous hadith, actually it might not be that famous, but it's a, it's a correct hadith that says, whoever points a weapon at his brother, even if, he, even if he was joking, the angels will continue to curse that person until he point, until he puts his weapon down. And a weapon here could be a fork, could be a knife in a, in a familial setting, in a jokingly setting, but even making the child afraid of this folk, Rasulullah does not want this to happen. We sometimes think it in terms of, yeah, he doesn't want to have violence, he wasn't to have, he's symbolizing extremism. No, no, no. He's talking about even if the, uh, even if the weapon is, is, is a, a toy, a, a gun, a toy, but more importantly, he does not want the child to be scared. He does not want the child to be terrified, even under the name of, uh, of, of joke and, and having just a good laugh. Um, there is another third incident whereby uh, one of the companions, who, who was really very famous and known for his piety, his name is Abu Dharr al-Ghifari, and um, Abu Dharr was among those who converted early in the stages of Islam. But one day uh, he said to his young boy, who was not his child, but worked for him as a servant, uh, it seems that he, he asked him to do something and the young boy didn't, and therefore he wanted to punish him. And the way in which he punished him, or so he thought, was to call his mother with bad names. And Rasulullah heard this, and he said, Oh Abu Dhar, did you actually call his mother bad names? He said, Yes, Ya Rasulullah, in a very uh, shy, you know, embarrassed way. He said, then you have the characteristics of a jahil, of an ignorant, even if you are a Muslim. In fact, Abu Dhar is shocked. He says, Ya Rasulullah, after all these years of companionship and all these years of conversion to Islam, you say, I am a jahil. He says, yes, because you called his mother with bad names and this is not appropriate. 
the, the thing is, I mean, when, when you ask me about bullying, the, the, the problem with bullying is that, you know, in the case of, in, in the case of Rasulullah this was a Medinan society. Everyone carried the same global values that Rasulullah upheld and Rasulullah radiated. He could address the mother if she lied at her son. He could address a brother. He could address a brother playing with his other brother pointing a, a weapon. The problem that we encounter today and that's the reason why bullying is so painful, is that the mother and the father see the child coming from school, crying because he or she has been bullied, and then they begin to think, what can I do? Who could I speak to? Should I tell the child to go and beat up that bullying child? Is that acceptable? Should I go and speak to the principal? What will be the impact of all this on the child the next day when they say to him that you're a scary cat, you went complaining to your parents, you should actually... All these sort of issues, why? because we don't have a central authority that is radiating for everybody the same values. And this is the real challenge that the Muslim community need to encounter. And sometimes I say to myself, the one who should be replacing Rasulullah today as an authority should be the ulama, should be the uh, imams in the masjids, should be uh, the teachers, should be the coaches, the personal trainers. We should create this kind of an awareness. And I know it would not replace as if it were the Prophet but at least it will create this kind of multiplicity of different authorities and on the long run it will create that kind of an awareness. Absolutely, absolutely. Jazakallah. Uh, another um, issue within society and I'm sure there's been probably um, sayings and incidents where the Prophet advised us on balance and um, we are so overwhelmed and, and, and taken over by school and um, extramural and activities and um, having to fit into society and um, even the madrasa is not there anymore as what it used to be back in our day. We're going every afternoon after school to madrasa. Um, it has become non-existent in a way. So that balance of not seeing your your parents often. We used to have a ritual of going to you know granny and grandpa once a week or over weekends. But, but the, the children are so overwhelmed with homework and projects and then there's extramural. What did the Prophet advise us? And I know there's always always a there was always advice on on moderation. But uh, yeah, in his life, what was his advice on you know balance and time and responsibilities? What 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 was important? Sister Hawa, this is this is a, a again a very fascinating question, and because it it is extremely difficult, even we as adults we actually struggle with what we today talk about as time management. And again, as we see books on emotional intelligence. There are ample books on also time management. One of the hadith on in Shama al Tirmidhi, uh, one of the books that talks about the characteristics of the Prophet, it is said that Rasulullah used to divide his day into three parts. One part he gives it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of dua and ibadah and isolation and meditation, etc. And then the second part he would give it to his family, including his children, his wives, etc. And then the third part it would be for himself. For himself, meaning for serving the people, meeting with the companions, etc. So, uh, Rasulullah here is giving us one of the much needed skill, and that is time management. I think the essence of time management is discipline and commitment 
to it. Sometimes uh, we, we, we are aware of something. We are aware that we need to wake up early in the morning, but only to go to school. But if it's a weekend, we oversleep. We are aware that we need to go to the gym uh, only because before marriage we go to the gym, but after the marriage we grow a belly. My point is, I'm sorry, maybe this is not an appropriate, but my point is that whenever we, we believe in a particular value, we need to stick to it. Rasulullah that was his schedule, whether he was in his 40s or 50s or 60s. So that's number one. Uh, number two regarding the, 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 the responsibilities. I agree with you. Today we, are, we live in a very over-ambitious age. We want to become wealthy. We want our children to become smart. We want them to become half of Quran. But at the end of the day, we are overwhelming. It's actually straining our very human relations together. And it's coming at the expense of other things. What's the point if someone becomes a medical doctor, but the expense of not seeing his grandmother for multiple months? My point is that we need to maintain and strike a balance between, yes, we want to be successful, we want to be wealthy, but at the end of the day, we have to also focus on things that do not bring us money necessarily, but brings us emotional credit with our family, such as love, care, sacrifice, empathy, caring for one's elders. It doesn't. Our relations do not have to necessarily always be transactional. Like, you know, how much am I giving? How much am I receiving? Now, you asked me about parenting and what, does, what did the Rasulullah did. Inspired by the action of Rasulullah with the children, you have a lot of scholars that uh, have written in the past about parenting. And a prominent scholar that you usually do not quote in, in, quote in, this, in this parenting, usually it's Imam Ghazali, Abu Hamad al-Ghazali. We usually quote him in Ihya al-Din, Sufis, Tasawuf, etc. But believe it or not, he actually wrote a book about parenting. And one of the things that he says, where he talks about the need to give children a break and allow children that they, after they come from the madrasa, they need to be given time to simply play, do nothing but play. He says, because if we don't, we are creating dumb children. We are creating children that are not smart because he believes that playing gives us this time to process what we've learned and it gives our mental, and even today, in the books of creativity, they say that the more sometimes you think of a problem, the more you don't find the solution. But if you go and take a shower, or go and jog, or just go and med meditate, it is here that you will find the solution. It's like this uh, uh, this person uh, who, who who had uh, um, who who invented the law of uh, floating. What was his name? When did he, how did he uh, come up with this law? While he was having, uh, he filled uh, yeah. the water in the banyu and, he, and then he said, I found it and found, you, you know, Eureka, or I found it or whatever. So today people come up with all these kind of ideas. Sometimes I personally, I come I, and I'm just driving my car. I see something that has nothing to do with the problem I was thinking about and then come up with creative solution. My point is that we do not have to always impose on the children and make them victims of our ambition. We get to be children only once. I will only be 13 for one year. After that, I will be 14. Please let me enjoy my 13. Please let me mess around, play, etc., etc. Because if you deny me that now, you will see sometimes that it fires back. People grow up to be depressed or people take time to mature because they are fulfilling their lost and stolen childhood from them. 
If you talked about moderation, I'm saying other than moderation, justice. Let's understand the needs of each each age group and give it. Now, I'm not saying that they neglect their homework. I'm not saying they neglect their madrasa. But we need to do it in a way that is subtle, that is balanced, that is moderate, and recognize that they have other needs just then to learn the Quran or make their multiplication or maths equation. Absolutely. So from that, there's come so many questions, but now I have to quickly kind of stick to a schedule because we have some listeners and our production team that has put uh, together some questions. I'm going to hold on to that just a little bit because you, um, doctors br brought up the, you know, the question around playing, teach your child uh, at a certain age when they're meant to be playing, you know, then a certain age you teach them and then, you know, they're your friend. So inshallah, we'll move on to that a little bit later on. But to bring up the fact of grandparents, um, how the Prophet ﷺ was a doting grandfather and um, maybe some examples of how our grandfathers, um, our grandparents rather, today can emulate that, inshallah. So to make a context for that, Rasulullah was a grandfather for seven, seven granddaughters uh, and grandsons or sons and or girls and boys, four, four, four boys and three uh, girls. How did he used to deal with them? Actually, again, I mentioned this in my courses. There is a fascinating book that uh, is called How Did He Deal With Them, specifically talking about Rasulullah and how he, did he deal with various sectors of society. And there is an entire chapter about Rasulullah, the grandfather, and how did he deal with his uh, granddaughters and grandsons. And he gives you this, the author gives you these kind of subtitles. So one of the titles is that he used to joke with them. He used to laugh with them. He used to carry them. He used to carry them for long periods, so much so that them at that time not wearing nappies used to urinate on his legs and he would say, nothing is the matter, no problem. He would, he would ask the mother, who would be usually his daughter, the daughter of the Prophet, to take the boy and he will ask for water and he will clean the urine and that's it. End of story. He will allow them even to go to the mosque, something that unfortunately today um, some mosques in the same way that they ban women, they ban children. So it reminds me of these segregation uh, or, or uh, you know, the, uh, during the 50s and the 60s in, in America, no, no Jews, no blacks, no dogs. Sometimes you have mosques here, no children, no women. But uh, so, so Rasulullah used to allow the children to... And think about it. If a child is not wearing a nabi, nabi and he urinates on the lap of the Prophet, could it be a possibility that this same child who's not wearing a nappy because it was not available in society, could have been urinated in the mosque. But that did not prevent the following day, Rasulullah would not say, children urinate, prevent them from the... No, they would come. They would come and sometimes climb on the back of the Prophet whilst the Prophet is prostrating. And the Prophet would prolong his prayers deliberately until Umama, one of his granddaughters, have had enough of enjoyment. You spoke, we spoke a while ago about the importance of playing. Now please, square this for me. He is praying and he's leading the prayer in congregation. And as we have a schedule in this radio prog program, he had also a schedule to finish the prayer before time. Yet, the prayer is prolonged, not for a reason to do with the companions or Ibadah or Allah or the Prophet, but to do with the concerns of a child that has not had enough climbing the back of the Prophet. And after the prayers, the companions are asking, Ya Rasulullah, why did you prostrate for so long? And then he would say, my granddaughter Umama is having fun 
Why should I actually interrupt her? I had to wait until she finishes. And then I said, Allahu Akbar, and I ended the prayer. So he used to take them to the masjid. He used to carry them. He used to advise them also. This is the important role of a grandparent. Sometimes we think of a grandfather as the one who's spoiling the kids, just bringing them candies, etc. And attention happens between the son. My, my, my father, why are you bringing candies? He has just brushed and, and that's why in the books of parenting they say let the grandparents spoil your their, their grandson this is their role in life because they are now grown older soft-hearted etc etc so but Rasulullah would also advise and would also give instruction so one day uh, Al-Hasan one of his grand uh, sons uh, ate a date that fell and um, in fiqh, and we are not going to speak here about fiqh, but this is something to be mentioned uh, alongside uh, this example. Alil bayt are not allowed to eat from the sadaqah. Alil bayt for the people of the household they are not allowed to eat from the sadaqah. Rasulullah is not, no one is allowed to inherit a uh, to, uh, to have inheritance. When Rasulullah died, his money was distributed to the poor. Even his wives did not inherit, or his children did not inherit. So he said to Al Hassan, Kech, 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 and you know, says, dirty, dirty, dirty. So, even though Al-Hasan could not yet understand haram and halal, Rasulullah spoke to him as a grandfather, the language that babies can understand, by saying, kech, kech, don't eat this. Of course, he did not tell him, sadaqah, and we are al bayt but of course, he looked to the elders and said, we, al bayt are not allowed to eat dates, because that date that fell was from the sadaqah. So uh, there is a lot uh, that could be said about the role of uh, grandfathers and uh, Rasulullah is a role model in that. Often we use superheroes and the modern um, sort of relevance of what's happening today to our children, these cartoon characters. How can we make Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam relevant and the Sahabas relevant in our lives for our children every day, whether it be a bedtime story, whether it be a story of the Qur'an. Uh, just elaborate on that, Dr. Ishaan. It, it, Sister Hawa, this, is, this has been one of my major difficulties and challenges. I cannot compete today as a speaker talking about a seerah. I cannot c compete with Hollywood. I can't mm. compete with the movies that we are being bombarded with on a day-to-day -day basis. Animations, you know, on a radio I can't mention certain animations, otherwise I'll be accused of making, you know. I myself, when I take my children to animation movies, and I don't want to mention names here, I am thrilled by the, it's amazing. You know, there is a verse in the Quran that says, they know everything that is related to this dunya, but they are so negligent and ignorant of the day of Al-Akhirah. I really you know, have great faith in this verse, particularly when I watch animation. Why am I saying this? Because they are doing everything with focus, concentration, itqan, perfection. Um, in one of the animation that, that I saw two weeks ago, they say that one scene uh, took the producer and the actors and the voice makers maybe three, four months to do. This scene, you see it in one minute. But it is that one minute that carries all the subliminal messages and your daughter goes back home not remembering the entire movie but remembering that specific minute you come and compare this to our animation islam islamic animation 
so slow the voices even sometimes they bring the voice of a girl the voice of a woman because they don't have enough girls or the voice of a woman is a young girl because the voice of a woman is haram all these issues that are creating an impediment and then here i am a father coming and saying to my children uh, we can't go and watch this movie because i'm going to sit down tell you now the story from the seerah how can i compete and with all these movies there has to be girlfriend boyfriend dating kissing love etc etc so it's a very difficult question but one of the things that i do is to try to be equally as much as i can as animated as i can even with my students even in the courses that i did here in cape town and johannesburg as much as i can visual for example it was extremely difficult to use powerpoints like in ted talks and i'm sorry here to mention a you know ted talk but to you how, how am i going to use powerpoints to do with rasul i want to talk about rasul in his 20s and 30s okay so how can i do powerpoints about the seerah or about Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam i met with uh, Mustafa al-Aqad Mustafa al-Aqad is the director of the message uh, and Umar Mukhtar and of course he passed away a few years ago and i met him in london when i was a journalist and i'm working for the bbc world service at that time and i said uh, mr mustafa how did you make the message and, and 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 you know what sort of problems and issues and he said it was extremely difficult and i said uh, there is also you know you brought anthony queen uh, anthony queen now is dead and he's a famous italian actor uh, should, you know, didn't you fear that people will connect hamza to anthony queen he said hisham listen i looked for many many actors that could play the role of hamza even in the arab world with uh, dark skin whatever speak arabic but anthony queen uh, you know regardless of him not being an unmuslim he had the charisma he had the aura and subhanallah a lot of muslims today know asira love hamza because of anthony queen the point is that sometimes we need to use the tools that have been fortunately or unfortunately founded and innovated by the non-muslims so in my powerpoint and maybe there is a tip here for teachers when you teach the seerah don't necessarily uh, be refrained or embarrassed from using images you will be if you think about the seerah as personalities but if you think about the seerah as concepts ideas emotions then you can reduce it to an image that reflects that a uh, concept or so for example i'll give you an example very simple example uh, may i may i give give an example yes sure go ahead okay so there is one incident in which rasul sallam when he was at the age of 34 uh, encountered a problem the people of makkah were building the kaaba and came to a stumbling block as to which tribe will position the black stone in its position in the kaaba and for 5 days they are arguing and were about to enter into a civil war because they could not come to a solution and in the process they came up with this idea or solution that the first person who will approach them as they are sitting they will use him as an arbitrator and see what he thinks here you have an issue or a problem where they need someone to think outside the box and they encounter al-rasulullah who was only 34 not yet a prophet and he comes up with this creative solution he brings a cloth and he says put the black stone in the middle of the cloth each tribe now brings forward a representative each representative from that each tribe takes part of the cloth and we raise the cloth together as if all the tribes 
raise the black stone, and I'll take the black stone, which was a meter above the ground, and position it in its place. So here you hear the story. When you go to Google and Google the story, you find it all over the place. Click on images, and you will find some non-Muslim drawings, literally, of Muhammad in the middle, and all the people of Quraysh. And I cannot use this picture. But then I say to myself, why are you telling this story? I am telling this story to encourage the Muslims to be creative, to think outside the box, and to provide society with services, even if that society was non-Muslim. Ah, so here it's about creativity. And here then you have a bingo. You go to Google, you write creativity, you go to images, and you have all sorts of wonderful images. You pick up one, and you put it as your visual, and then you narrate the story. If we can do something like this, now this is just a picture, but maybe you have someone like yourself who's more acquainted with technology, can use a video clip, can use musical impact, can create this sort of a sound effect, geared towards creativity, and you tell the story in your own animated, powerful uh, 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 way, but backed up with colors, images, and sounds, maybe, just maybe, and you are sincere and genuine and passionate and charismatic, just maybe children will be impacted. Now, from my experience, when children find you genuine and so eager to share a story with them, and of course they see that you are a role model, not just telling them a story and half an hour after that you slap them, smack them in the house or you swear at your wife in front of them. When they see you are a role model, it really has a great impact on them. And I can definitely vouch as a doctor does hold some awards in 2013 for the innovative lecturer, as well as in 2012, the faculty mentorship. So definitely getting the word out there, mashallah. So with regards to our extended family, we know that they are there, they need to be relevant within our lives. How do they play a role when it comes to raising children? And how rather did they play a role when it comes to raising children at the time of the Prophet So today, the concept of extended family, extended family, and I studied anthropology and sociology as well. Extended family means, technically speaking, and historically means three generations living in a single house. And that usually was the norm 200, 300 years ago when you had an agrarian society where every member of the family was needed and the more children we have in a household, the better, because they mean they will go cultivate the farm, collect the crops and then we can take and sell in the market. But after the Industrial Revolution, of course, uh, men had to migrate to the city, live in little small flats, and of course get married to a girl that he met in a factory or in the neighborhood, and you ended up having the phenomena of a nuclear family, which is usually made of, of one or two generations, of course, the spouse, the spouse, the man and the wife, and a couple, preferably no more than a couple, or maximum three uh, children, because flats back then were, were small. And of course, with that transformation, eroded the values of the extended family. And now we have a challenge. We have a challenge. So where is the extended family? I think, uh, and this is something, and again, I'm not flattering here the people of, of, of the Muslims in South Africa. I have met people now uh, who have what we call family businesses. Now, all over the world, including in Kuwait and in the Arab, we have family businesses. But I've seen it here more visible. I have fam I've seen family businesses where you have the entire family 
holding a business. Now, one of the things that divides members of the family is money and, 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 and interests and, and life and dunya, etc., etc. But you will see these families so much united, so much wealthy, that not only do they prosper in their business, but they make schools, they build mosques. Um, uh, you know, excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry to, but there's, you know, we, we visited the Qurtuba Academy, for example, a fascinating place where the entire family lives in the academy, but they also have built residential areas, rental areas, they have built a mosque, they have built an academy. So you have this golden role model of what families can do if united together. So my, my main message is that extended family is so crucial. Now, in my book, entitled Muhammad how he can make you extraordinary. There is an entire chapter about the extended family and the role the extended family played at the life of Rasulullah when a child. So his mother dies at six and then he is taken care of by his grandfather. His grandfather dies when Muhammad was at eight. His uncle then takes care of him from the age of eight until 25. And then I make the argument that every member of that extended family instilled in Muhammad the child, the teenager, the adult, a particular value that really contributed to the development and the nurturing of his character. For example, he learned love and care and kisses and hugging from his mother Amina. He learned leadership skills and how to communicate with different tribes and adults from his grandfather Hashim. Because Hashim was the caretaker of Mecca. And every year when there was pilgrimage, he used to be responsible for providing the water for free for all the pilgrims. And you have to, you have to imagine how much water, and we are talking about sometimes scarcity of water here in South Africa, how he would queue the people in one queue, how he, would he manage resources. Who was watching all this? An eight, nine years, seven years old Muhammad seeing how his... Uh, Hashim also presumably would have told him, oh my grandson, you were born in this year called the year of the elephant. I saw this year when Abraha came all the way from Abyssinia and he was about to destroy Al-Kaaba. And then he learns trade and merchant and traveling and he goes to Syria from his uncle. What's my point? My point is that unfortunately, children today have a very limited experience because much of the experience they get are purely from their parents only. And the other they get from the social media and from school and from the teacher. But where is the role of the extended family in actually filling up that gap which was given to Rasulullah? Where is the role of the grandfather? Where can we have today an adult saying, I'm grateful for my father for so-and-so, grateful for my mother for so-and-so, but for that particular skill, I'm grateful for my uncle, I'm grateful for my aunt. Now, and in the book I say, what about if the extended family is not anymore living in the same house? What if they are in the same neighborhood? Or what are if they are in a different city? Or today, economic conditions, different country? I say... I, I say that today, nuclear families should utilize the advancement in social media. We have WhatsApp, we have video conferencing, we have all these kind of things. So you can contact your grandfather even if he is in India or in Malaysia or in Australia. Make it a point. 
And then you mentioned something earlier. You said grandparents, they are here for a particular time and after that they are gone. But even then, we can reignite the memories of the deceased by having an album. And why not, and a photo album, why not make a family tree inside the house of album, of photos? This is your grandfather. This is your grandmother. And make like a family tree. And every time, bring, if, once a week even, bring the family together and narrate a story about each photo or a single photo and come up with particular skills that this person was famous for. Your grandfather was famous for being generous. Your grandmother was famous for cooking this beautiful dish which would take hours and hours and we would consume it in two minutes but nonetheless she was patient and don't just tell the story ha ha we laugh and go to bed no what does this story tell us it tells us about the importance of patience and discipline and commitment and here you have an example whereby the grandmother that is virtual and that he has never seen except in a photo become a living role model for that parent Dr. Hisham, our time is literally up. I've got 30 seconds left, but I quickly want to squeeze in the beautiful gems that we have to appreciate. Um, often, and we hear the Prophet saying, this stage is for playing, this stage is for teaching, this stage is to be your child's friend. In about 60 seconds, just elaborate on that, inshallah. So in my book, Children Around the Prophet, which has just come out, I speak about treating children as if you are building a, a, a particular building, and every time you are adding a block, so the first block has to be the block of emotional block, love, rapport, um, emotional credit. This is where you allow them to play, mess around, etc., etc. And then the second block, you come and nurture them, teach them, advise them, give them feedback. And the third, you discover their talent and you empower them and you let them go, hoping that they will be better citizens, even far more better than you have been. Jazakallah khair, Dr. Hisham Al-Awadi, we appreciate your time here in South Africa. We hope you do come and visit us soon. Have a safe, safe travel and all the best. Big, big shukran and uh, salama travel home. Thank you so much, Sister Hawa. It has been a wonderful interview and salam to all the listeners in South Africa. So that's it for today's show. We hope you added value. We hope you enjoyed it. But most of all, we hope our guests is inspired you to live with purpose. Don't forget to send us your suggestions via info at accidentalmuslims.com. If you know anybody out there that is inspiring, that's leading, that's living with purpose, please uh, do contact us. And remember, feedback is our oxygen. So follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you enjoyed. God bless. Assalamu alaikum.